0: Well, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, on this show, just about anything can happen. And tonight it probably will, because we're going to tackle something which I never thought in my life would become in any way, shape, or form. Remember, I grew up during the Eisenhower years Uh, controversial. The American presidency, in particular, that span stretching from the first president, the first American president, George Washington, who it turns out almost didn't make the cut. And we'll explain what we mean uh, by that as we move through the morning or evening. Um, And of course, Donald J. Trump. The last full administration, we don't include Biden because, you know, it's only, what, one and a half years into the his first term. So the jury is still out. Although I must say, for someone who is just a year and a half into that uh, administration, the president has uh, achieved some extraordinary things. I mean, a whole series of extraordinary things. In fact, so much more extraordinary than his immediate predecessors that you kind of have to go back to the 1960s and the Johnson administration to see a president so successful, particularly in terms of the measurement of success in any presidential administration, which is his legislation that he can get through the Congress, that actually that's probably going to come up uh, at some point during the evening as we go through a recitation of uh, how do we judge presidents? Where, where, where do we judge them? Um, do we judge them right away? Do we wait for history and historians? Well, we just so happen to have a very able-bodied citizen historians with us tonight. Anyway, I will get to the introductions when we get to the show, but I do wanna kind of catch everybody up on the uh, top of the news. For those of you who are new to The Other Side of Midnight, and a lot of you are because when I do these interviews, like with Nuri or with Clive or others, um, people come over and kind of take a look or in this case, take a listen. So for all of you who are kind of just brand new, uh, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our main home page. Click on tonight's banner which says there, very close to the top, you scroll down a few uh, uh, turns of your uh, thumb wheel on your mouse, the American presidency, a deep, deep dive with Jones, Honiger and Lambert. And right under that, it says to listen to the show with a, uh, there needs to be a capital large font T there. And then under that it says guest page and fast links to items. Click on my name, and that will take you to the section of Radio with Pictures on the guest page where I have my news items arrayed. So we're going to start tonight, as we have done for many, many uh, weeks now, ever since uh, the announcement of the first unmanned test of the human-occupied spacecraft, the Orion uh, Command Module, the crew module for the uh, Artemis mission to and from the moon, which will commence shortly. The first mission is going to be, unlike during, uh, well, actually during Apollo, it was unmanned or unpersoned. The first Artemis mission, which launches at the end of the month, still scheduled for the 29th, which is a Monday, following our Sunday night show. And I'm planning, I finally decided, you know, I was kind of kicking around whether I was going to do what I'm going to do that final Sunday before the mission and whether I do it like a week earlier and then we would kind of talk about it on that Sunday. No, I'm going to do it on that Sunday for two reasons. One is it's more suspense. I mean, come on, we love suspense here. And number two, I need the time to get ready. This is complicated, as you will see when you get to see what I'm putting together, and frankly, we need more time. So on the 28th of August, which is two weeks from tomorrow night, I think if I can call up my calendar here, we're going to do a three hour full discourse on what is waiting for the unmanned Artemis mission which is going to be a kind of a a tryout, an early out-of-town rehearsal for the second Artemis mission, which will only take place in the following year in uh, 2023, up and around the moon for many orbits and then back to Earth. That one will have four crew persons. Uh, This one is unmanned, unpersoned. But there is a mannequin or two on board, and they're doing all kinds of measurements. And for our purposes, um, the most interesting and crucial thing is it will carry literally dozens of incredibly high resolution uh, HD live television cameras, and they should be giving us a constant stream of video. Uh, Not quite constant. Uh, We'll explain more about that when we get closer, but it's on this Artemis mission that I'm almost willing to bet that there will be some amazing video in stunning detail of what we have not seen since Apollo, when the astronauts took film, remember film, old-fashioned color film images of these astonishing, stunning, artificial, extraterrestrial structures on the moon. Now, if you joined the party lately, what I just said probably made you fall off your chair. What? Hoagland says there's structures on the moon? Yes. And they're huge. And they're fantastic. And even though they're incredibly, incredibly old, there's still enough left of them that if they get the right angle and the right sunlight and the right timing, the images, the incredible HD digital images that will be downlinked, at all hours of the day and night from the Artemis command module in this long looping orbit, this retrograde orbit of the moon, uh, should blow our socks off. And we will enter a whole new era. Now, it's obviously not going to be quite that simple because there's going to be delays. The question is how much delay between NASA taking these images and them releasing the images the american people and the world that's what we don't know at the moment and they built in a kind of a standby excuse which i will detail in the coming couple of weeks and then go into great detail on the evening of the 28th so with that as prelude um go to item number two which is right under the artemis update there in item number one um the uh Unmanned spacecraft complement, which are rushing out toward the moon even as we speak tonight, but we'll get there well after because they're kind of on their slow boat to China. Remember, a few weeks ago, the unmanned Capstone mission, which is a spacecraft about the size of a microwave, weighs about 50 pounds, uh, is loaded with all kinds of interesting radio gear and high precision timekeeping it's got an atomic clock on board and it will also be taking HD color images Um, that will arrive in lunar orbit about a month after Artemis has come and gone because it's on what I call the uh, slow boat to China mission what do I mean by that well if you remember back some of you and if you don't remember you can Google Google is your friend Even if they eavesdrop on you, they're still your friend because they provide you with almost anything you could imagine. And they only want, you know, a piece of your soul in return. So um, you can decide if that's worth it. Anyway, um, during the Apollo missions, it took the astronauts only three days after they left Earth orbit to arrive at the moon in lunar orbit. These missions, and there are two of them, one was launched about a month ago, I think, give or take, and that is the Capstone mission. The other one, which is the first unmanned spacecraft uh, launched by the South Koreans called Dinuri. Um, Capstone is an acronym. Actually, it's an abbreviated acronym which really connects the mission to the Great Pyramid in Egypt, but that's a whole other discussion which we will save for two weeks from tomorrow night. The denuri mission is a kind of a synthesis of two Korean words, which means, one which means enjoy, and the other which means moon. So, Denuri means enjoy moon. I mean, uh, you know, foreign nationals, when they send these spacecraft, um, they really are imaginative in delving into their own deep mythologies and histories and coming up with some really superb names. Um, of course, NASA's no slouch either. Apollo and Artemis are right on, mythologically speaking, as you will see and hear in a couple weeks. So in that tradition, the Denuri mission, which was launched a few days ago, um, it's not going to arrive until about a month after the Capstone mission, which will not arrive in orbit around the moon until November 13th. Well, the Denuri mission, the South Korean a uh, 1,500-pound unperson spacecraft, robotic spacecraft, carrying all kinds of really neat instruments, including a 33-pound, yes, you heard that ritually correct, a 33-pound camera put on the spacecraft by NASA called the Shadow Cam. Oh, I keep forgetting to have to, the the uh, playback of, of the uh, Shadow Radio program to, to play when I do that because... Most of you kids out there, you don't know what the shadow knows, and I'm not going to try to imitate him tonight. But I guarantee for the next show, I will have that queued up and ready because it's kind of historically interesting in light of what the shadow cam uh, on the Denuri mission put on board this other national spacecraft to the moon, unmanned spacecraft, which will arrive December 17th. Uh, A few days past, a month after the uh, Capstone mission, it also carries cameras, and one in particular, the shadow cam, is specifically designed, according to the NASA press releases, to look into the shadows, the permanently dark areas at the moon's south pole, which is where, of course, the first human landing of the Artemis mission in 2023 is supposed to set down. We're not going anywhere near the equator like Apollo did, but they are going for the pole, for the South Pole, uh, because that's how the orbit works out. If you want to, you've got to pick one or the other. You can't choose both. So they're picking the South Pole, which is where the very, very unmanned lacrosse mission of NASA uh, crashed into the moon deliberately back in 2009 to basically scuff up a dust cloud So it could be measured from Earth and from orbit, from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, to see if, in fact, there was water on the Moon. And there was a resounding success with the unmanned mission. The Centaur rocket, which kicked up the cloud of dust and a hearty high of silver, um, literally was miles high, and the crater itself, caused by the equivalent of a uh, I think it was about ten tons of TNT of kinetic energy when that unmanned upper stage slammed into the moon, caused the crater, caused the cloud of ejecta, which was then surveyed by spectrometry, both from the follow-on La Crosse spacecraft itself, and of course from the Earth, from the observatories that were looking at the moon at that specific time, at that specific night, uh, to see what was kicked up. Turned out there was a lot of interesting stuff in that cloud, which of course is why the, un- the manned Artemis mission, by the way, Artemis was the sister of Apollo, just so you kind of get that right. Um, the manned version, the human version of the Artemis mission in 2023, which will carry the first woman astronaut to the moon and the first person of color, according to the NASA mantra, is also going to be landing near the South Pole, possibly in one of those permanently shadowed craters that the ShadowCam NASA mission uh, this December is going to begin surveying, looking for ice and water and other volatiles. At least that's what NASA tells us. And as I will go into some detail in a couple of weeks, that mission, which has been highly touted by the space agency, as it is described, cannot work. Let me repeat that. The shadow cam mission on Denuri, when it gets to the moon in December, -December, mid-December, is going to ostensibly take incredibly high uh, sensitivity and high resolution images of the ice in those permanently shadowed craters lit by the sunlight bouncing off the crater walls because the craters at the South Pole and the tilt of the moon to its orbit is such that those craters never, ever in the bottoms see sunlight. So they're very, 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 very cold. The idea is they become coal traps. And over billions of years, this is the NASA model, any stray molecules of water or other volatiles that will kind of bouncing around the moon, uh, lit, you know, heated by the day temperatures on the sun side of the moon, which is like 250 above zero, well above the boiling point of water even at uh, sea level pressures, let alone in a vacuum. Any molecules of volatiles liberated by the high temperatures of the lunar day, uh, literally bounce their way to one of the two poles. And when they get into these deeply shadowed craters, it's so cold. In fact, it's so cold at the bottom of these craters. This sounds like a bit in Johnny Carson. How cold is it? It's so cold that it's literally colder at the bottom of these sun-less craters than on the sun side of Pluto. When Pluto turns slowly around every six days and aims one of its... Uh, hemispheres toward the sun about 4 billion miles away so literally in our own earth moon system we have the coldest regions even colder than the dark side of mercury before it turns around uh, and faces the sun so we literally have the honor of having the coldest place in the solar system right next door and it has become we now know from the lacrosse mission and uh, also the follow-up detections by the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and its uh, spectrometers, we know that it is home to all kinds of incredible, incredibly frozen, just above absolute zero volatiles, including water in the form of ice, uh, that astronauts can live upon on the moon and cosmonauts and taikonauts and any other nation's uh, uh, astronauts who wish to go there. And why would they go there? Well it is NASA's intention over the next several years uh, beginning I believe with the third mission um, where they're going to actually land. The second mission will only go into orbit like a uh, Apollo 8. The third Artemis mission will land at the South Pole And by then, they will be taking with them or have pre-positioned, by means of NASA unpeopled rockets, um, all kinds of supplies, logistics, including fuel, energy, communications, habitats, whatever. Because the Artemis III mission is going to begin the process of setting up, in the 21st century, the first international moon base on the moon, at the South Pole. Things are about to get really, 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 really interesting because it's all dependent on those two unpeopled missions, Capstone and Denuri. And both of them, if they do not work, the whole Artemis program of landing at the moon's South Pole and setting up the beginnings of Moonbase Alpha cannot proceed in other words nasa without those unmanned missions and their data will be dead in the water even the water on the moon so many more details and all the interstitial glue and why those missions as at least the one of them at least the nuri and the shadow cam on board is conceived can not work as advertised nor is it intended to in fact we will unveil um, as i hinted at last week the real mission of the malin shadow cam because yes the scientist in charge of the shadow cam going to the moon on the denuri mission is none other than michael malin the chief cover-up officer of nasa in keeping any knowledge of extraterrestrial ruins either on the moon or on Mars or anywhere else in the solar system, totally, totally secret. So his hidden agenda will be unveiled in great detail here on the other side of midnight in two short weeks. Moving on, item number three. Um, In case you haven't noticed, there has been an interesting escalation in the soap opera surrounding the Donald Trump presidency, things have gone from bad to worse to you've got to be kidding. And there's no end in sight. Um, I don't think this is the end of the story. I think this is kind of merely the beginning. And what we mean by that and the context of our entire program tonight, where we're going to take a very intensive, deep look at this extraordinary and unique American institution the American presidency from Washington to Trump will be unveiled in the next uh, two and a half plus hours. But as prelude, look at item number four. Because our first president, as we now know from exquisite and overwhelming documentation in fact you might want to look at four and five together, uh, unquestionably was a Freemason. Uh, when he became the first president of the United States, uh, 200 and what is it, 46 years ago, I think now, and counting. And if you doubt that, uh, look at num- item number five. This is a statue, a bust, sitting on a gorgeous polished, uh, granite block in the garden of the, um, uh, Scottish Rite Temple of Freemasonry which is located just up the street uh, by design, as you're going to find out from the White House. And what I've always found interesting when I found this this statue there in the garden was the um, very elegant monument, which is a uh, granite block inscribed below with a bust of Washington uh, sitting on top. Notice what it says. It says, George Washington, Freemason and first president, notice the order. That is going to become extremely relevant and important as we go through the evening, which of course leads us to item number six, because it was about a hundred years after the creation of this experiment, the United States of America, the American experiment, where the country kind of finally, after a lot of fits and starts and architectural plans and models and lack of funding and interrupted funding and finally funding that was allowed the monument to be completed, it was in 1885 that the Washington Monument was dedicated literally in downtown Washington, D.C. Uh, between the, the White House, the Capitol, And the uh, well, of course, at that time, the Lincoln Memorial did not exist. So it's kind of at the at the uh, bend of a right triangle going down from the White House, making a sharp left hand turn and over to the Capitol. And that's where they put the Washington Monument, which is a 555 foot tall Egyptian obelisk, which is so out of place amid the Greco-Roman architecture of the rest of Washington that I am sure that when tourists come to town, the most interested and the most curious kind of look up and say, who ordered that? And yet that has been dominating the Washington, D.C. landscape for well over a hundred years. But there is a backstory, as we will be getting into in the rest of the evening. Finally, item number seven. Um, I tell you what, let me kind of leave number seven for when we get into the conversation because you're going to see how number seven, which looks on the surface like it has nothing to do with anything that we've discussed or will be planning to discuss tonight, in fact, is centrally, critically involved. And as you can see by the little decal there on the base of that, very interesting tetrahedral display case. It is connected to item number one. It is connected to NASA and the return human missions to the moon in the Artemis program, and exactly how will be unveiled as we move through our conversation this morning. So, without further ado, let me introduce. Uh, my panelists tonight, um, we've got uh, Marvin D. Jones back with us, who was our citizen historian who lives in, uh, uh, in or near Boston. I don't kind of remember where, but since I lived in Springfield and worked there, I know that is at the other end of the world's most expensive uh, Main Street, namely the Mass Turnpike. Uh, we also have Barbara Honinger with us who is the only person on our panel tonight who has actually lived and worked in that building in Washington. And no, I don't mean the monument. I mean the White House. She was actually a senior advisor to the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, and uh, actually for a time to his predecessor, Jimmy Carter, President Carter. So she's worked for two presidents, and we're going to get into how that kind of came to be. Our third uh, participant this morning is my friend and colleague and our resident metaphysician who worked for Manly P. Hall for many, many years, um, Georgia Lambert. And why is Georgia with us? Because our conversation tonight is going to deeply involve um, not just the physics of going to and from the moon and not just the political science of the presidency and the creation and the conversations and arguments of the founding fathers, including uh, items from the Federalist Papers and discussions among all the founders as to what kind of chief executive for a new government breaking away from the English monarchy should we have. But it's also going to be a view from 30,000 feet that I hope will kind of complement mine, which is there's nothing accidental about the American presidency in terrestrial history, and certainly nothing accidental or coincidental about its crisis right now, as we move into the earliest parts of the 21st century, and much more important, the relevant parts of the 26,000 year processional cycle, which is driving the hyperdimensional physics, which in our model, is modulating all of this. And so on that note, uh, since we only have like about uh, 30 seconds, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to defer introducing my guests of the morning until we are um, safely ensconced in the, in the beginning of the next segment. And so without further ado, I think what I'm going to do is to play for you a little tune which is so apropos of the evening because, in fact, it is emblematic of uh, what we're going to be talking about, which is the presidency of the United States of America. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
1: to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. A broadcast that provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
0: And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday, August 13th, 2022. Tonight we talk about the American presidency, and since the chief executive of this republic, a republic dedicated to the idea of the common man, and, of course, woman, is so redolent in the structure of the United States government itself, I kind of felt that Copeland... And his fanfare to the common man in various iterations would be kind of appropriate. So this is Aaron Copeland fanfare to the people to whom the United States was in fact created the common person. Welcome back, everyone. My guest this morning, we're going to start with Barbara Honiger. Barbara served uh, two presidents and uh, thereby hangs a very interesting tale. Uh, gosh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall back when you were walking in those doors for the first time, Barbara. Take us back to what it felt like and how you got the job. <laughs> Can you hear me OK, Richard? Five by. <laughs>
2: OK. All right. Um, Well, I want to begin um, by just saying that, whereas I appreciate every time we do one of these shows about when I was in the Reagan White House, that you always want to um, promote me to a higher rank than I actually had there.
0: (laughs) Well, you were one of the only women I know.
2: Well, um, in in a
0: in a policy position.
2: Right. I was a policy analyst. I would not call myself a senior advisor uh, to to President Reagan. That was the position of my boss and mentor, Dr. Martin Anderson, who was the chief domestic policy advisor. I was both one of his three top assistants, and I was also... uh, Separately and independently, a policy analyst in the domestic policy side. So, and I was in the West Wing of the White House, and our offices were effectively over the Oval Office. So, yes, I was there. Um, so, you want to know what it was like the very first day I walked into that building? Yep. First? Yep. <laughs> well, there therein lies the story. Um, I did not work for President Carter, I was in the Carter White House before. He left office, which is quite phenomenal, because I had been working for Dr. Anderson at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where I was a you know perpetual student, undergrad, graduate, graduate at large. I think I was a student there for twelve years. I never wanted to leave, um, but I finally did leave uh, because I started working for Dr. Anderson to get the money to put myself through graduate school at Stanford, and. Uh, One day he came into the office and he said, well, you have you have a choice. Uh, In about two weeks, you can either be out of a job and on the street or Reagan has invited me for the third time to be his chief domestic policy advisor in his 1980 campaign for the Republican nomination. And if he wins, which he will this time, we're certain of that, um, you can uh, you would go with me to the top floor of the uh, Reagan campaign headquarters. And if we win, which we hope to, then you would be in the transition team on the top floor of that. And then from inauguration day on, you would be with me in the White House. Um, so it's your choice. Do you want to be out of work or do you want to go to the White House?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a terrible choice. Seriously. were were, were, were you? Uh, hang on, hang on. Were you a, yeah. were you a formal Republican?
2: Hmm. No, never have been. Uh, I was completely apolitical, I don't think I even read a newspaper back then. I was a, a egghead uh, graduate student at the time in the neurophysiology and neuropsychology of human and non-human primate communication, And uh, but I had to have a job to put myself through my graduate program, so I basically worked almost full-time, and then I took courses part-time uh, for my graduate work. At Stanford. And um, so, no, uh, I was completely apolitical. But I'll tell you, I was politicized really, really fast. And we can get into that story if you like. But that wasn't until I got to the Republican convention in Detroit.
0: So you started um, out as an innocent nerd.
2: No, I was like, literally, like I was like Dorothy and Oz when I got to. Oh, my to, God. Oh, my. I can yeah, see I was it. like Dorothy and Oz. I even have a little black dog here by my side, you know. Oh, I mean. Yeah, no, seriously.
0: Well we're certainly uh, not in Kansas anymore.
2: <laughs> I'm not sure we're in America anymore, but Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um we have to get back to America, not just uh Kansas. Although there was a magnificent vote uh in Kansas um wasn't it uh, abortion uh, resolution a few weeks ago Um, so maybe the kansas are going to get us finally back to the real america but anyway to answer your question what was it like when i first went in there well to answer that question you need to understand that i was very high level in the campaign and the transition so um, my boss martin anderson uh, was going to be the he already knew reagan had tapped him to continue in the role and be the chief domestic policy advisor to President Reagan, which is the equivalent of the national security advisor, you know, uh, on the, uh, the the defense and foreign policy side. So Marty had to set up the entire Domestic Policy Council uh, and our shock in the West Wing of the White House. And you don't want to do that, you know, at 12.01 p.m. on January 20th, <laughs> Inauguration Day, you need to have already done a lot of infrastructure work inside the White House to set that up. So I was one of, I don't know, I'm guessing five to seven individuals from our domestic policy side in the transition team in Washington, D.C., who was selected to actually uh be the Reagan, the new Reagan administration team that went into the Carter White House and worked there during the day for about three to four days, five at the most, while Carter was still president. And that is an incredibly important period of time.
0: Oh, my God. He, yeah. The whole Iran thing was blowing uh, up or dragging uh, it was on or- a
2: hostage crisis. And it was because of what I learned there in the campaign, the 1980 Reagan Bush campaign. Uh, headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, in the transition and in the White House that led me to do the research for my book, October Surprise, on the treasonous deal that George H.W. Bush, when he was Reagan's vice presidential running mate in the 1980 campaign, uh, cut with the Khomeini regime to delay the release of our hostages in exchange for about $5 billion worth of illegal under-the-table arms to Iran once they gained the White House, which, in fact, happened. This is all... uh, this is all detailed uh, and uh, now has been verified by formerly classified documents in my book, October Surprise, which was published on May 12th of 1989. So so I went into the... Uh, Boy, talk
0: about a baptism of fire.
2: Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm serious. And uh, the other, the other baptism of fire, as I said, I was literally like... I had worked for Martin Anderson, who was probably the most had the, the, the rawest, most phenomenal intelligence of anyone I've ever been in the physical presence of. And he was my boss and he thought I was brilliant. He said so. Um, he said so on national television. Um, So we had a kind of mutual uh, admiration society and I had worked for him for a total of about six years, beginning at the Hoover Institution. Then I went to my graduate program in parapsychology, left after about two years working for him. Uh, We published books, uh, I co-authored books with him at the Hoover Institution on military subjects, especially the military draft. Then I went off to my uh, first ever accredited, fully accredited graduate program in the world in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology for about a year and a half and then was hired back by him about nine months before we went to the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign um, and the, uh, you know, the uh, Republican Convention in Detroit in 1980, where I literally ran the platform speech writing office and had significant inputs into Reagan's speeches talk about a baptism of fire and an instant politicization I was literally politically naive I just knew that I liked working for Martin Anderson he tapped me to go with him so it was coattails thing but once I got to the 1980 uh, convention in Detroit we were three floors down from the top of the Renaissance Tower, which is a very high tower. And Reagan's uh, suite was, Nancy and Reagan's suite was on the top. Uh, The one below that, I can't remember who that was, but we were the third one down. Uh, And that was our speech writing and platform development office. So one day, uh, my my boss, Martin Anderson, was uh, in charge of writing the platform, drafting the platform for the Republican Party, which, by the way, started the whole right wing. Uh, Swing of the United States in politics Um, from that very moment uh, in this room on the second floor down, just below Reagan's suite, Reagan and Nancy's suite. So I was the only woman in the room. And it was a round table. There were probably ten of us. I was the only female. And it was at that table where all of these men decided for the first time in American history up to that point both political parties had supported the Equal Rights Amendment. It was at that moment that they decided to put in the platform in order to try to get the uh, votes of the evangelical Christians and the right-wing the right wing evangelical Christians. Uh, they decided to, for the first time, have the Republican Party come out against the Equal Rights Amendment.
3: Oh. At,
2: at that moment, the only woman in the room, I felt like... Someone had taken a knife and put it in my stomach. And I was instantly politicized, and there's a story behind that, but that's not probably what we're talking about tonight. But yes, that was my baptism of fire. And I was a radically pro-choice feminist, uh, top aide and policy analyst to Dr. Martin Anderson, who became Reagan's chief domestic policy advisor in the White House. Second floor of the West Wing, just not not far from being over the Oval Office. Marty was pro-choice. Um, in fact, he and his wife Annalise were so close to Anne Rand that they were one of a handful of individuals who were invited to her wedding in her small apartment. Uh, and Anne Rand was a radical feminist. Radical feminist. She was a radical individualist. Okay?
3: Mm.
2: So, um Anyway, I then I, I was one of the handful of people who went into the Carter White House ahead of time and saw the panic um, that was happening there because they were trying desperately to get the hostages home. But of course, um, Reagan and Bush, uh, excuse me, uh, vice president, vice presidential, uh, running mate of Reagan's and William Casey who became Reagan's first CIA director had cut this secret treasonous deal with the Khomeini regime um, that is the subject of my book October Surprise and of course Carter was never going to be able to bring the hostages home the deal had already been cut on October 18th and 19th 1980 in Paris so
0: Wait a um, minute. What, 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 for people that obviously don't know much history like me um, This was the deal that was cut by someone flying the to be vice president, George Bush, to Paris in an SR-71. Is that correct?
2: No, I don't believe so. Um, That was the claim of a guy by the name of Gunther Rosbacher who claimed to be one of George H.W. Bush's personal assassin team, by the way. Um, and that becomes very relevant to what I wanted to talk about, if we could get to it, on my items, because I was there the day of the attempted Reagan assassination attempt and have very, very critical historical personal experience uh in the white house the day of the assassination attempt when we get to that um but no not in sr 71 um this guy russ bacher was a fabulous and a serial liar um but did he go there yes he did uh almost certainly in a bac 111 but you know those are details that are not that important
3: mm-hmm.
2: um george bush senior and casey did cut this treasonous deal um on the, uh, between uh, the 18th and 19th of October of 1980. And all those details are in my book, October Surprise, which is available on Amazon still, um, published back in 1989. And a number of books that were published also confirming all of that, that were published, the first one almost three years later by Gary Sick, uh, Navy Captain... uh, Naval Intelligence Captain Gary Sick, who had been the top Iran advisor in the National Security Council under Ford, Carter, and the new Reagan-Bush administration for a while. And it took him about three years to realize that I was right. He published a book by the exact same title, stole most of my material, didn't even mention my books about three years later. But there are a number of other books on um the details about the October surprise treasonous deal uh, between the Reagan-Bush senior campaign and the Khomeini regime to delay the release of our hostages for almost three more months. Um, And and for those who remember, they were released literally as, interestingly, not Reagan, but George H.W. Bush right after him. Completed his oath of office, right, during the inauguration ceremony. Hmm. And the plane was allowed to leave by Khomeini off of the Tehran airstrip and came back to the United States literally as those two oaths of office were completed. Um, You know, any kindergartner could figure out that there was a link between them, right?
0: Well, I remember watching the uh, the inauguration on television and then the subsequent ceremonies. And part of the tradition is that after the new president is sworn in, everybody runs up to Capitol Hill and they have this gorgeous, lavishly serviced uh, luncheon. And they did. And it was during the luncheon that Reagan gets up and makes the announcement that the hostages have left Iranian airspace.
2: Yeah, except we know that they actually left. Uh, Ter- well, they left the Tehran airport. It would take a little while to get outside of the boundary of Iran. But um, you know, they had left. They had left uh, Iranian airspace long before he made that announcement.
0: Artistic license, okay.
2: Yeah. So I did want to comment about the uh, Washington Monument, if I could, because yes. you brought. The- well. Um, I would like to refer people to the program that we recently did on this show, The Other Side of Midnight with myself and Scott Walter in Georgia, Lambert, who's on the show tonight. That's a great program. I can't remember the precise date. I thought it was the wasn't it the 19th of July. Anyway, it wasn't that long ago. It's, two or, it's,
0: about, it's about two or three weeks ago, I think. Yeah.
2: yeah, two or three weeks ago. It's called Scotland Unearthed. And... Um, I would refer you to all of the details, uh, especially of my presentation uh, in that program that I won't be able to go into tonight because we have a slightly very important but related topic. But as far as the Washington Monument, um, I did mention in that program, and I'll mention here again, that it makes absolute perfect sense that the Washington, underlie the word Washington for George Washington Monument, is an Egyptian omelette because of the absolutely central uh, links, uh, not only to ancient Egypt, but in particular to the uh, Orion, Isis, Horus, high myth or high belief system of the ancient Egyptians, Um, because the the Washington family crest, uh, which I personally experienced in George Washington's ancestral home, uh, being there in Sulgrave Manor, England, even though he was, uh, he, he also had Scottish royal blood uh, in his in his lineage, um, but his ancestral home, going back quite a number of uh, hundreds of years, was in Sulgrave Manor in England. And um, the Washington family crest is in a beautiful stained glass window in their dining room there, and it is the three stars and the two stripes in red and white. And those three stars are the three stars in the belt of Orion.
0: Oh, my. Of
2: course, Orion is Osiris. Yep. And three stars in the belt of Orion point to Sirius, which is the star of Isis. Okay. And, of course, the dollar bill, um, the Great Seal of the United States, the reverse side of the Great Seal of the United States, of course, and our dollar bill, have the pyramid, the Great Pyramid uh, in Giza in by Cairo, Egypt by this Sphinx, and um with these 13 uh 13 uh, levels and um you know there's there's and, and the eye in the pyramid above at the top um which of course is the um is the eye of of uh, rock it's the eye of the sun god the original ancient sun god of ancient egypt so yeah um I'm not surprised there's an obelisk for the Washington Monument, not at all.
0: (laughs) Well, the more you look at these interconnections, the more profound and deep and incredibly meaningful, and I believe meaningful for this time, as we're going to try to lay out tonight, they they become Um, are are we at a kind of a pausing point? Because I want to go to Georgia to context before Marvin, how we almost didn't get George Washington as president and the monument, and all the Egyptian connections, or or, or did we?
2: Yeah, well, we can do that, but as long as we come back to the rest of my items in particular. Oh, we will. Um, two, uh, which is, I was there for the Reagan assassination attempt, which is related to all of this.
0: I think that is is a further part of the story a little bit down the road. If you,
2: Yeah, okay. let's, let's go to Georgia for who George Washington really was, and how he wasn't even offered the
4: presidency to begin with.
0: Uh, Georgia, <clears throat> yes, you are on.
4: <laughs> if people will go to my guest items on the show notes, um, you can go to the number five, which is the crown of America. That's a PDF that is downloadable for everybody that talks about the fact that the crown of America, because... In those days, monarchy was all that we knew. And there was a big contingency that wanted a new monarchy in the colonies. Um,
0: this, the is first, even, this is even after the revolution.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, the first uh, choice was Bonnie Prince Charlie, who was the Scottish royalty that lost the royalty at the Battle of Culloden in 1745, I believe. Um, Those outlander fans out there will know about the Battle of Culloden (laughs) when the English took over and uh, the clans were trounced into the dust. Bonnie Prince Charlie dressed up as a woman and beat it out of there in a boat and uh, was in exile. He was aging. And in exile in France and Italy at the time. But it was the royal lineage. And so the crown of America was offered to him first, which he declined. There were a couple of other uh, interesting uh, candidates. Uh, One was a Prussian prince, uh, Prince Heinrich of Prussia.
0: Oh, good grief.
4: Uh, and, uh, that didn't work out because he was Russian, a <laughs> big surprise. Um, another candidate was Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent, who was the fourth son of King George the third, who we just fought the war against. Mm. So that was next before he even knew about it. And of course, then it was offered to Washington. As Barbara mentioned, Washington actually, uh, way back when, has a family connection to the royal lineage of Scotland. And it's interesting that after the Battle of Culloden, a lot of Scots came to the United States, particularly in the Washington, D.C., Virginia, West Virginia, uh, Carolina area. You look at all the place names around Washington, D.C., Annandale, uh, Arlington, Alexandria, Dumbarton Oaks. These are all Scots names. ah. Uh-huh. And so uh, uh, Washington was offered uh, the crown, and there there was a wonderful book written some years back called uh, *Cincinnatus*, which is uh, about Washington's uh, relationship, uh, mythologically wise, to Cincinnatus, the Roman senator who declined uh, the the the. The robe of purple, as they say. So Washington refused. But uh, when it when Bonnie Prince Charlie didn't pick it up, it went bounced around a bit, but then it went to Washington. I mean, and this, is, this, inter- this is a story we never hear about. No, I know. It's really Sarah, interesting. Could you explain to us who was considering these other candidates? What group person- of I have no idea other than, you know, the political parties at the time were uh, the ones we know about from, from, uh, from our, our history books, you know, the Patriots and the Tories. But there were uh, quite a large contingency of monarchists who wanted to continue the monarchy because this was the only method of government that they knew uh, for centuries in old Europe. Uh, and so obviously it came from those quarters, but um, uh, fortunately for us, it didn't stick. And Washington was uh, uh, pre- pre-visioned enough to well, say, no, nope, that's not what we're about. You
0: know, I'm kind of at the stage where I don't really tr- trust in Providence. I don't think it was ever in the cards, even if the monarchists thought they were going to have continuity. And for that, we're going to turn to Marvin at the uh, after the top of the hour. So please continue. So they offered it to to an old Scott geezer. He said no. Then they offered it to a Prussian guy who, of course, had hired the Hessians to fight against the colonies during the war. And he said no. Right.
4: Right. Um, And again, Henry of Prussia's drawback was that he was Prussian (laughs) uh, and this was one of the most strictest, absolutist monarchies in Europe. Um,
0: well, yeah.
4: <laughs> but behind the scenes of this maneuvering, uh, you brought up the point earlier, Washington was a Freemason. Yes. And since the time of Elizabeth the I, the esoteric brotherhoods had a plan for this land that didn't include the monarchy. Nope. That included the development of the common man, as you say, and Washington being high up in Freemasonry and having his paws probably in Rosicrucianism as well, um, knew that, you know, a monarchy was not part of that plan. Uh, Georgia? Georgia? Yeah. Do we know why these first three candidates declined though? Well, uh,
0: I tell We, we, we to have to trust. pause because we're at the top of the hour and these are hard breaks to the top of the hour. So my guests this morning are Georgia Lambert, Barbara Honiger and Marvin D. Jones, our citizen historian. And I thought this would be interesting. This is another version of Hail to the Chief. Over and out.